If you would this morning, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, who is called the Prince of the Prophets, because he embodies within them all that a prophet would be, should be, could be. (laughs) He is the Prince of the Prophets. And rightly so, if you've ever read his book, it is the longest. It is 66 chapters, um, which interestingly enough, correspond with the 66 books of uh, the Old and New Testament, which is what we call the Bible. And fascinatingly, further, uh, in chapter 39 to 40, there's a transition, a major transition there from 40 to 66. There's a very different section uh, to the book, which many scholars even try to say was totally written by somebody else besides Isaiah. I don't hold to that, but my point is simply there is a transition in 39 and 40, and there are 39 books in the Old Testament, and there you go, 27 in the New. So... The book even transitions where the Bible would transition from the Old to the New Testament. And of course, that last section in Isaiah is dealing prophetically with the Messiah. It's a fascinating book. And Isaiah, of course, also speaks to three different generations of people, of Israelites. He speaks to his very own time where uh, the Assyrians have come in and they're about to take over the northern kingdom in 722 uh, with Tiglath-Pileser. And then he also speaks to a a generation that he doesn't even live to see, uh, which is the Babylonian takeover of the southern kingdom, Judah, by Nebuchadnezzar. And he also speaks to a third generation of Israelites, those who come back from that exile, back to the land, the post-exilic time, uh, allowed to come back underneath the Persians, in particular uh, Cyrus the Great. So... Isaiah speaks to three different groups, so to speak, two of them being in the future. And he even names Cyrus by name uh, roughly 200 and something years before he ever even shows up. A Persian king. So, and of course people say, well, you know, that was obviously written after the fact into his text. Well, was it? Because can't God foresee some things, even particular things? And by the way, that is... The most in the Bible, it's the most particular prophecy in all of the Bible is Cyrus's name. Um, normally, prophecy is pretty, as you have read in Revelation, it's pretty generic, general images. But here, there's this particular name. And of course, the Messiah. We read, remember the other week from Isaiah 53, where, and again, that's in that section 40 through 66. Uh, where it's just you can't read that passage without thinking this is Christ, this is Jesus. If you went around and simply handed out that one chapter and said, "Tell me who this is talking about," people would say Jesus, and it's in the Old Testament, <laughs> uh, seven years before he ever came. So, again, Isaiah being a uh, amazing book, an amazing prophet the Prince of the Prophets. Let's read again a portion of what we've already read in our Scripture reading today, but go all the way to the end of of this short chapter here, this very powerful chapter, strategic, really, uh, as he's placed it here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your Word. Your Word is amazing. It's powerful. It's sharper than any weapon. And it pierces us to the very core of who we are to our marrow. So Lord, this morning, would you once again pierce us, and as you do, heal us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know anything about Isaiah, and this is not a um, sermon on Isaiah, but just for context purposes, Isaiah is basically having to say to God's specially chosen elected people, he's having to say, you're going to be destroyed. The people who were supposed to have the favor of God resting on them, who were called uh, out of Egypt, out of that wickedness of Egypt, into the wilderness, God supplying for them, God revealing to him His very self, His very law, who set up for them uh, the tabernacle, um, now even the temple, the sacrifices, a way for God to dwell with them. The people who had the truth, He's now having to say to them, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be laid waste by none other than God. In other words, God is now your enemy. (laughs) It's a fascinating journey through chapters 1 through 5 and even other parts of Isaiah where you go from judgment to hope. Judgment to hope. Judgment's coming, but there's hope that remains. <laughs> really, really reminds me of several movies I've seen. Uh, 
not just Lord of the Rings, but other movies where only when it gets dark is there that little glimmer of hope, little glimmer of light that remains. Because any good story, telling any good story, has to get dark before you ever see how good it can become. If it doesn't get dark, you don't see how much you need the light. And Isaiah recognizes something here in this vision that we have, and that is, he thinks of himself as a pretty good guy. He's a prophet, for crying out loud. And yet, when he gets in the very presence of God, what does he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. <laughs> I had this, um, as actually the president of, of Wesley Biblical Seminary when I was there, very cool guy. I mean, very academic, very scholarly, and yet uh, could preach like none other, uh, but also could hang out and watch movies with you like none other. You know, he stayed up late at night and would hang out with students and whatnot. Just a very cool guy. He said he was at this very prestigious uh, event. It was actually a women's uh, conference that he had been invited to speak at. And I mean, this guy, he's, he's a shaker and he's a mover. I mean, he, he gets around to all the big things. He had to raise money, of course, for the school. And so he's very interconnected. Anyway, he was at this women's event. And he said, uh, you know, he got up and spoke and, and uh, you know, just really let him have it. And just, you know, poured his heart out uh, preaching and all that kind of stuff. And when he sat down, he noticed that his fly had been undone the entire time and his shirt was actually poking out uh, of, his, of, his, of his pants uh, the entire time. He said he was so embarrassed and just, you know, felt that he was just undone. Um, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where all of a sudden, you know, you realize that you, you know, it's kind of like that dream that all of us seem to have and that is you walk to school and all of a sudden you realize, I don't have any pants on. What's going on? Uh, you feel undone. You feel like you're naked. You're ready to cover yourself. Isaiah feels this way. When he gets in front of God, before, he's fine. I, I'm a good guy. I mean, compared to so-and-so, compared to this other prophet over here, this wicked prophet, I, I look pretty good. But when he gets into the presence of God, he says, whoa, 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 I, I need to cover myself. That is, the, that is the typical reaction we want to do is to cover ourselves. Notice, what Adam and Eve try to do once they have sinned against God is what? They try to cover themselves. They try to hide from God. And we say, how absurd. And yet we turn around and we do the same thing. Remember the people when they are at Mount Sinai and God speaks a word and they say, whoa, no. Hey, let's, let's not do that anymore, God. Uh, why don't you just speak to Moses only? Okay, we don't, that kind of freaks us out. I mean, our kids are crying here, you know. Uh, can, let's just you speak to Moses and, and we'll listen to him, okay? Because we don't want to be in front of God. People say all the time, I'd believe in God if I could see him. It's something that's most often said, really. But I don't think we really know what we're asking for. <laughs> for one, to see God now would mean instant death. There's no way a human flesh like ours could stand in front of the consuming fire that God is. Notice the picture that is given here. Notice that this is a vision and not actually Him in heaven. Because if it was Him in heaven, His life would be over in the flesh. 
Instead, this is a vision. And in this vision, what do we have? This high and lifted up scene. God's uh, sitting there on a throne. He's obviously the king. He's in his temple. There's two images here. One is he's king. One is he is priest. There's smoke that fills the house. He's a consuming fire. The train of his robe is so long and majestic. Uh, You have these seraphs, which the very name seraph has to do with an angelic being, of course, which is a pure spirit before God. But also seraph in particular means fire. This was one that is burning. So there's basically flames who have wings who are God's messengers. And one of these flames comes up and touches Isaiah on the lips. And of course, Isaiah, his response is um, to then be able to hear this call that God has been giving. Notice again what he says in 7. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The two things that we need most coming to God is forgiveness of sins that washed away that those things erased from the past, but also our sin in the singular, not sins forgiven, but sin inside of here, my wickedness atoned for. And then he hears God say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice the plural and the singular usage in that declaration. And Isaiah says, here I am. You can send me. Because now he's been cleansed. Now he's been forgiven and cleansed. And God basically says, okay, if you want to go for me, then I want you to say to this people, I want you to go and I basically want you to preach to them that they will not hear, that they will not understand. I want you to preach so that it will blind them. I want you to preach so that it will stuff up their ears so they won't be healed. (laughs) Now, isn't that an interesting message? So you thought everything was going hunky-dory and all of a sudden God turns the wheel. Oh, we have to go through that part of the neighborhood? Isn't that a little scary? You sure you know where you're going? It's fascinating that we can never predict God. It is, uh, that's why we need revelation. Not the book, but revelation. You can't reason your way to God. No one reasoned about a virginal birth. That doesn't even make sense. No one reasons that God who is spirit, the Scripture tells us, could become flesh and suffer. God who knows no suffering, who is outside of human suffering, who is outside of sin, takes on our suffering, takes on our sin. No one can think of that. No one could have thought of that. No one could have humanly reasoned that out. That is not logical. It's beyond logical. It's not that it's illogical. It's just beyond our logic. Three doesn't equal one. One doesn't equal three. And yet, there is this unity. This tri-unity. 
triuneness of God. Three persons, and yet they are one. Who will go for us? Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So Isaiah's message here that he must preach is a tough one. (laughs) Much tougher than the ones I normally have to preach. And not only this, he says, How long, O Lord, verse 11, am I going to have to preach this? And God says, Until everything's laid waste. Until there's nothing but stumps. All the trees have been cut down. The land has been wasted. Burned up. Raised. And then at the very end of this chapter, that one little phrase is the glimmer of hope. Notice what he says. The holy seed is its stump. Who is this holy seed? None other than the root of Jesse growing out of the dead cut stump of this great oak tree, Jesus Christ Himself. What was the great tree? It was Israel. And God cut her down to size. She was the chosen one. And yet there was another chosen out of that chosen one that rose from the stump. You know how stumps are. I don't know if you ever tried to deal with that. At our old house in Pearl, we cut down this tree and the stump would not go away. It just kept there and we would burn it. I'd pour gasoline all over it and we'd burn it and smolder and it was still there. It's tough to get rid of a stump. And here, all that's left here is stumps. Just whatever remains of desolation. And yet, there is hope coming from what seems like a hopeless situation. And by the way, that's the reason he gives this historical reference here about King Uzziah. Why is he important? Because he was one of the good ones and now he is dead. And they know that the next person that comes to the throne is not good. He's not going to follow God. It's a time of uncertainty. And do not we live in a time of uncertainty? Of immorality? Of fear? Of anxiety? Three things this morning from this vision, very briefly I want to share with you. The first is our culture says we must see God before we believe God. We must see something before we can do it. This vision here is a vision of God's holiness. We demand God on our terms. That's what the saying i got to see God before I believe Him. That's what that means. God must meet me on my terms or I'm not going to believe Him. It's one of the most basic things. I'm not going to be your friend if you don't do this. Oh, well, would you be my friend even if I did that? Because it sounds like you're just using me. We need a vision of God. Not constructed in our mind. Not made up from us, but made up from His Word. From the Word of God, Jesus Christ, who continually surprised people. 
The religious people surely thought, oh yeah, he'll be on my side on this issue. And he was not. He would turn against them. And then of course, the poor people who he defended over here, he would jump down on them. And the rich people who thought they were the outsiders, he said to Zacchaeus, alright buddy, we're going to your house today. He calls Matthew, who is a tax collector. He was the worst of the worst, the super rich. So as soon as we think, oh, Jesus is only for the poor. No. Jesus is only for the rich. No. He's not taking sides. Jesus is for all people and He surprises us all because we all have different areas where we go astray. We must see Jesus Himself and stop playing around with whatever's in our mind. People have all kinds of different understandings of God around the world. And yet, who is He? How do we know Him? We know Him through His revelation. We know Him through the historical revelation of Israel and Jesus Christ. The prophets and the apostles. That is the revelation. He has revealed Himself and that's who He is. He's not who you want Him to be. He's not who I want Him to be. He is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the movie The Matrix, which is one of my favorite trilogies, uh, Neo goes to see the Oracle and he is trying to figure out who he is. He doesn't yet know that he is the one. And he goes to see her and she basically tells him, yeah, you're not the one, kid. And he's like, okay, whew, man, I'm so glad that was over because everybody's like putting all this pressure on me and everything. And he's about to walk out and she says, look up there and in Latin it said, know thyself. And he said, you must know yourself before you can understand yourself. And it is the wisdom of the world to know thyself. And there's a whole discipline, primarily called psychology, that tries to know one's self. And everybody that I know that takes psychology is only confused about the self after they get out of those classes. Because truly, a pursuit of the self will never get you an understanding of the self. <laughs> It's what happened wrongly with the ascetics in Buddhism and Hinduism. They go off to be by themselves, and who are they? They're just by themselves. They don't know who they are because they're not relating to anything but the nature around them. The only way you can know yourself is to have friends, have family, relate to your spouse. Not by looking inward do you find yourself, which is why so many college kids who say they're going to look for themselves never find themselves years later. Because the self cannot be defined by self. Even Jesus Christ, who is God, doesn't define Himself by Himself, does He? He says, I only speak the words that I hear my Father speaking. I came from the Father. I was sent by the Father. I'm doing the Father's will. Who descends upon Him? Who leads Him into the wilderness to be tempted? How does He do His miracles? It's by the Holy Spirit. So even Jesus, who is God, doesn't define Himself by Himself, so to speak. 
You know, if we were to guess God, like the ancients did, we'd come up with many gods, a polytheistic, pluralistic world. It's very simple. I mean, you look around here, and there's many of us, and there's many different types of us, so there must be many gods and types of gods. That's reasonable. That's logical from nature. Well, because of the Jews, and Islam says, well, you know what? God is just one. There's just one guy in charge. It's like we have one president. There are, there's one sovereign over the land. There's just one God. He's a single man in heaven. And Christianity says, no. Both of those are wrong. God is not a monad. A singular, numerical one person, man. And He's also not a pluralism. He's not a polytheism. He's not a pantheon. Instead, He's three persons, one God. One God who is three persons. That's the affirmation of Christianity on this Trinity Sunday where we remember who our God is. He's not a conception in our mind. He's not an old man in heaven handing out sugar daddies. He's not an old man that can't really see. All right, come over here, sonny. And he can't really see what we're doing down here. He doesn't just put on Jesus-colored glasses and he can't really say, oh yeah, you're doing real good. And really you're not. He's also not an angry man. He's not out to get you. Instead, he's a three-personal God who cares so much that God sent his Son, who is God, to suffer and die for us and with us and to pave the way for the Holy Spirit who is God to come and dwell in us so that while we suffer, the same Spirit that was upon Jesus is upon us. And the same Spirit that raised Him from the dead will raise us. And the same Spirit that points to Him will point to Him in us. The same Spirit that bonds, so to speak, the Father and the Son in their love bonds us to God. It's the same Spirit. We don't get anything less. It's not like Jesus gets premium Spirit and we get some type of half-off Spirit. Discounted Spirit. Clearance Spirit. Cheap. No. We get the Holy Spirit of God. It's an amazing thing. So the first thing is, we, like Isaiah, must see, and then if we see God, we must repent. Not see God like what the world wants. Oh yeah, we want to see God visibly right in front of us just to prove like He's a dog and pony show, how I want to see Him. No. We see Him for who He is. And then we, our duty and our response is to then repent. Now, repentance is not something that we even a lot of times think of ourselves as needing to ha- or having to do. We think of ourselves as pretty good. The Scripture does not. We're evil. We're cruel. We're untamed. And this is why we must submit, just as Jesus did to the Father. Remember, it's fine to come to God because of fear of hell. Remember what uh, in the wisdom literature in Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. To fear Him. Be scared of His judgment. 
And here Isaiah is bringing down the house. He's basically saying, God's coming to bring down the house. You say, well, is He not going to redeem that? No, He's going to tear the whole thing down. Okay. Well, He hasn't done that before. Well, He's about to bring it down. And He does. He brings down the northern kingdom and they're never seen again. All of them. All those ten tribes are never seen again. They intermarry, they're killed, they're enslaved. They're never seen again. And then the only other two tribes, two and a half tribes that remain, they're the ones that go into exile. They're the ones that come back, Judah, and yet they're destroyed as well. Now, they had a deep sin problem. You see that in the Old Testament. And so do you. So do I. But God purged them as with fire. All of Jerusalem was burnt down and raised in, in 586 by Nebuchadnezzar, who was the tool, so to speak, that God used to destroy them. Tool in two senses. Because he was then turned around and judged. You know, you think, oh, thanks, God got to use me to make judgment, bring judgment down. And then he was judged for bringing that judgment down. But you know what happened? They never, ever returned to idolatry again. They'd been idolatrous all their existence, ever since they left Egypt. And God purged them of that idolatry through those exiles, through that fire that He sent. Are you willing to go through the fire with God and come out on the other side? Because at the end, we will meet a consuming fire because that is who God is according to Hebrews and according to the rest of Scripture. Remember who Moses meets in the burning bush that doesn't burn up is God, Yahweh. Our culture says, well, I I need to understand, I need to see it and I need to understand it. But God says, no, what you need to do is believe. You need to put your faith in me. You need to trust me. Not try to mentally understand everything. It's like what St. Augustine said. St. Augustine said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. Because you deny God. If you try to understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. He's beyond our mind. Can we understand some things about God? Absolutely. Can we totally understand God? Absolutely not. No more than you can understand the person next to you fully. Persons surprise us. Why would the three divine persons not always surprise us? You know how the difference is when you're reading a novel where you can have some room for imagination or you're reading a textbook. Very different genres. You're reading an instruction manual to put together a bicycle, which is boring. Why? Because it's all laid out. Or poetry, which is image-based, which allows your mind freedom. Heaven is more poetic in that sense than it is some type of logical construct. 
Not that it's not real, because who's to say that poetry isn't real? Saying real things. Notice most of the Bible is set in poetic language. Thank God it is. I would hate to be reading an instruction manual. When it finally gets to the instruction manual with the laws, I'll start falling asleep and dozing off. We like images because we like to see things. And God gives us what we need. <clears throat> you see, in understanding something, in our, in our desire to understand something, we try to control it. Which is exactly the point. If I understand Jessica and her ways, then I can control her. I know when she's happy and so I can manipulate her. I know when she's sad and I can do this or do that. We try by understanding to control. And that's why God will always be slightly beyond our understanding. Because we can never control Him. Remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read that, which probably is the best allegorical representation of Jesus Christ in a fictional character, Aslan. The kids are told by Mr. and Miss Beaver, they're told Aslan is not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. You don't just go petting him like he's a cat. He's a lion after all. We domesticate God as if he's our pet. God needs you to do this, I need you to do that. I've been pretty good, so you ought to be able to do that for me. We feel like he's on our leash. And we're dealing with a lion, the lion of Judah. We're dealing with an all-consuming fire that if he were to show up, we'd be burned up. We're a hay bale, and he's an all-consuming fire. And he invites us in to sup with him. That's how dangerous it is. But we don't think about that because we don't begin where the Scripture begins, and that is fear of God. We start with love. And only before... We will, we will always misconstrue what love is unless we start with fear, according to the Scripture. Because the beginning of knowledge is fear. The end is love, but we try to start with the end. Not with fear. Which is, by the way, something we can learn from Muslims. They really do fear God. Alright, the last thing is this. Our culture says just enjoy life. Enjoy whatever it is. It's all about enjoying where you're at. And the Scripture says, and Isaiah would tell us today, no, it's really about love. Because God is love in His own self. It's not just something He divvies out. It's not just something He does. He is love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are love. It's not some kind of fourth component to God. It is God. Love is God and only love can come from God. It's why God first loved us and that's why we then turn around and love somebody else. It's why Isaiah here, once he meets God, once he's cleansed by God, what happens? God turns around and says, alright, now you go out to somebody else. Start loving somebody else. Love the unlovable. Love those who are never going to hear. What if your job in life is to speak to people, uh, be friends with people, share the gospel with people who are never going to respond? That's basically what he tells Isaiah here. It's the ministry of Jeremiah, who preaches his entire life with no converts. Remember, he's at the very end when everything's coming down in Jerusalem, in Judah, Babylon's taken over. He even sees the destruction. 
personally. Have you even heard God's call on your life? Every person in this room has a call on their life. God has called you to a task, whether it's helping people in the medical field like my brother does. Like I was telling you the other day, I'm sitting there thinking, Justin, you you have all these screws and and braces, that metal pieces that you've put into people with drills. And they're just walking around in God's creation. Helped because you did something. You helped them. Or maybe it's teaching, where you're teaching young persons, molding their minds. Some of them never forgetting who you are and how you treated them and how you loved them. Or maybe it's working on whatever it may be in the engineering field or in the clerical field like I'm in. Or whether it's staying home and raising children, discipling those who you produced in the world. Every job is important, but you must know your calling. It's not just to work. It's to work and. It's to live and. Everything in life must be connected to our God's call on our life. From raising children to what we eat, to what we do today, to how we spend this gift today. He has given it as a gift. We only have this moment. We're not promised another. Are you willing to see this vision of God high and lifted up? Are you willing to believe and trust in God when He reaches out His hand and says, I know you don't understand, but trust me. Are you willing to live not for pleasure, like our hedonist world lives for. Where everything is just, how can I feel better? How can I be more comfortable? What can I do? I've got, I got to do something to make myself comfortable. Whether it's taking pills, or whether it's listening to music, or running to this, or running to that. We're always looking for what we want. Why not look for love Himself? Because love always costs something, that's why. Love is not cheap. If you're married, you know that. If you have children, you know that. Love isn't cheap. But the only way to true joy is love. So what will it be today? Will you repent of your sins? Will you believe in God this morning? Not a God that's constructed in your mind, but the true and living, all-consuming fire God? And will you... Love God. Do you love God? It's a question you need to ask yourself often. Yeah, it's fine to believe in God, but do you love God? Do you really love doing what He wants? Do you love Him? You can. He invites us even now to His table.